You know, I love our church. Yesterday, um, the week had gotten, a whole, uh, gotten away from me, so I was here at the church, um, blessed to be working on this, uh, with, my, with my daughter, Sage, who, who patiently for two hours, you know, sat quietly, well, actually I should say crawled around quietly as, as I worked on this. And then around six, Shane came, actually I think it was around five, Shane came to set the room up. And he noticed that I was using the room. So this young man on Saturday night who had work to get done at around five said, no, don't worry, I'll come back later tonight and, and set the church up for you. So I got to continue using the space. That night I got home and I emailed, so I thought, my PowerPoint presentation to Brian. He responds. That's how he always responds, but he responded that um, while I did send him an email, I didn't send him the PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> so I was able to immediately, you know, get that to him. Then I went to print up my sermon. Uh, I'm using a, a, an iPad for the first time, but I want a print-up copy, which is sitting over there in case the technology fails me. <laughs> so I, I sent Linda an email asking if she could print up a copy for me, and she not only immediately, or had immediately to give me this morning at Faith Builders, not one but two print-ups, one double-sided and one single-sided, so I would have my choice of, of what to work with. And then I came over here and asked Annette if I could see my PowerPoint, because I had added two slides that I hadn't even seen yet, I want to make sure they work, and seconds later, she had that up for me. And then in here, uh, for those of you who don't know, in the prayer room, uh, the worship team meets 15 minutes prior. And Danny leads us through the morning. Uh, he organizes everything up here for us and then prays for us. And he always prays in a way that reflects the scripture that's being taught. And then I also have to thank, um, you know, another... Uh, member of, of, of the body, my, my favorite body within the body, my, my, my wife, you know, she, she convicts me and prays for me and, you know, manages our circus so I can, uh, <laughs> during the week, you know, you know, prepare for this. So um, where I'm going with this is, <laughs> where I'm going with this is I'm, I'm the one up here but I'm not alone. There's a whole bunch of people at this church contributing to everything that happens up here. So that's awesome. All right, let's, let's get to this. Um, what would Jesus do? WWJD. Some of you are too young to know what I'm talking about, but some of you I'm sure recall the what would Jesus do moment. In 1993, a book was published called What Would Jesus Do? The book was an updated book of a book written in 1896 called In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? The first edition sold millions of copies. The updated version would sell 40 million copies and become not only a cultural phenomenon among many who claim Christ, but a secular craze as well, be it short-lived. People were wearing bracelets, 
t-shirts, hats, belt buckles. It was on lunch boxes, bumper stickers, and of course, a movie had to be made. It was released in 2010. At this point, sadly, what would Jesus do was not only becoming cliche, but ceasing to have any lasting value. In December of 2011, the BBC printed an article entitled, What Would Jesus Do? The Rise of a Slogan. Among other things, this article said, like most enduring slogans, what would Jesus do has inspired countless rewrites. There has been everything from political parody anti-war t-shirts asking, who would Jesus bomb? To beyond parody, such as the what would Jesus eat biblical diet plan. The original question, what would Jesus do, had been co-opted, particularly in the U.S., but also elsewhere. WWJD was being put on all kinds of things, including, if you knew where to look, teddy bears, underwear, and baby bibs, though the article, a secular article, argued that most of those things seem rather to defeat the purpose of reminding the owner about anything. In preparing for today's message, something stood out to me that made me not only think about the book, What Would Jesus Do?, and the countless other self-help books offering guidance in the name of Jesus, past, present, and future, that all come and go. Some books become bestsellers, and for a while it seems like everyone's talking about them until they're not. In chapter 5 of Matthew, the current chapter our church has been studying, verse 2 reminds me that Jesus has written his own book. And sometimes, as if to remind us, he uses words to emphasize to us who is actually speaking when we hear the Bible. Listen to what his words say in Matthew 5, 2. He, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them. So, we have the image of the invisible God, the author of life, the perfecter of our faith, directly teaching his disciples, which includes all believers, how to live. Just this phrase alone, he opened his mouth and taught them should make it clear to any follower of Christ, this is the book we need. The gravity of what is happening as Jesus delivers his Sermon on the Mount is further augmented by Jesus, emphasizing the power of what he is communicating with a phrase that he, God, repeats nine times in Matthew 5. I say to you. In addressing the law and personal relationships, living appropriately in a broken world, Jesus repeatedly says, I say to you, nine times. And again, think about this. He, God, opened his mouth to teach us how to live. And he, God, emphasized how important his direction is by nine times saying, I say to you. And in the entire book of Matthew, Jesus says, I say to you, 53 times. 
When this repetition started to leap from the pages of God's breathed out, living and active words to me, I couldn't help but think about the what would Jesus do movement and how it has seemed to disappear. I even found an article from 2020 entitled, Whatever Happened to WWJD? The author, like me, noticed that the popular phrase seems to have vanished. The author also suggests that the reason we do not hear the phrase anymore is because it fails to produce the desired outcome. That when people try in themselves, that is, employ their own thoughts, ideas, and efforts to figure out what would Jesus do in any given situation, rather than focusing on what Jesus has told us to do, and that without leaning on him and his living words, failure is imminent. And I will add, the words of men will always fall short. When we study this, the Bible, we hear God. When we study books, we hear men. The only book that can possibly deliver any true lasting help for living in a dark world is the one book written to stand the test of time. That is eternity. The book authored by God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, not a man. Only this book provides hope that is forever because only this book provides the key to salvation. Only this book can equip us with direction needed to navigate and negotiate all the challenges of life with any consistency. Only this book has an author, the author, Jesus, who promises in John 14, 26 to send his spirit to help us understand and keep his words. And as highlighted last Sunday, only by fixing our eyes on him, as Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 tells us, speaks to us, can we hope to lay aside the weights and sins that compromise the lasting joy that only he can offer, starting in this life and carrying us to the next. There has been and will continue to be countless books written offering Christian guidance. It's big business. And I don't doubt that many of the writers have good intentions, and there are books that do honor God. But obedience to the faith demands that God's word is upheld as the standard for his voice. I was reminded of this when I researched another popular book among Christians from the past, The Purpose Driven Life, which resulted in churches having studies and seminars that focused on the book, the purpose-driven life. I found an article entitled 30 Purpose-Driven Quotes from the Famous Bible Study. Not one of the quotes was from God's word. All 30 quotes were from men, celebrities of the faith, and even one president who never even openly claimed Christ. 30 life quotes from the famous Bible study and not one quote from the Bible. The focus of any Bible study must be the Bible. And the fixation of any believer's gaze must not be on what we think 
about Jesus or what someone else says about Jesus, but what Jesus says. And here we have an aim for this morning. Disciples of Jesus seek and receive all direction for life from his word. To arrive at our aim, we'll consider two points. God-honoring speech and God-honoring action. The first, let's ask God to bless our time together. Please bow your heads. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the word of God made into flesh, a man. In the beginning, you were with God and the word was God. While this is impossible for us to fully wrap our minds around, your Holy Spirit grants us the faith to believe and to learn from your living and active, breathed out words by the one who is fully man and fully God. Words that we are blessed to hold in our hands. Words that we are blessed to read. Words that we are blessed to hear. Words that we are blessed to speak. And that we are blessed to keep as a light to our path. You, Lord, the word of God, are the bread of life. It only makes sense that we are to consume your words and to let them dwell richly within us. You, Lord God, command the heavens to listen when you speak and the earth to hear the words of your mouth. And we know and celebrate that by holding a prayerful gaze upon your words that you will do the work that only you can do. Jesus, as you prepare our hearts to receive your words, I also pray, Lord, that if anyone listening has yet to acknowledge their brokenness directly to you and to receive you as Savior God, they would at this moment do so and join us in true worship. In your name, Jesus, amen. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 5, 33. And follow along as I read this morning's scripture, verses 33 through 42. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall make no false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. That would be Jesus. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you 
and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Before we get to this morning's focus, I want to provide a brief roadmap of how we arrived here in our study of Sermon on the Mount. We've been studying a speech, a speech delivered by God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. One commentator describes the Sermon on the Mount as the first of five great speeches delivered by Christ in this gospel. Therefore, it only makes sense that this speech exemplifies for us perfectly all the great qualities of speech composition. It would take forever to fully, properly analyze the words of our creator, but something I want to point out is the logical structure of things. Like a roadmap, Jesus provides us with words so we can clearly track what he's saying. First, Beginning in Matthew 5, 1 through 2, Jesus identifies and seizes a teaching moment with his target audience, the disciples. The number one priority for any speaker is audience analysis. A speaker must ask and answer three questions. Who's my audience? What do they need? How will I give it to them? Who is the audience here? Followers of Christ. What do they need? direction. How does Jesus give this to them? Blessings, responsibility, liberation, and guidance are all clearly laid out in his following words. Second, in verses 3 through 12, Jesus delivers blessings, the Beatitudes, hope, the hope that is characteristic of a true follower of Christ and therefore a call to live joyfully with eternal perspective that believers have because we are members of his heavenly kingdom. Third, in verses 13 through 16, Jesus delivers responsibility as being salt and light. Disciples are salt and light. And as was discussed weeks ago, this is not a shall be or a calling, or a suggestion. It's a defining characteristic of a true believer. Salt is a preservative. Light illuminates things. And believers, as salt and light, produce good works that shine for the glory of God. Fourth, in verses 17 through 20, Jesus delivers himself as the fulfillment of the law. Fulfill means to carry out, to perform, to obey, to satisfy, to complete. What were Jesus' final words on the cross in John 19.30? It is finished. Jesus fulfilled the law by offering himself up as a perfect payment. 1 John 2.2 tells us, for all the sins of the world. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus makes it clear that righteousness aside from Christ is not humanly possible, reminding us that even the scribes and Pharisees, the falsely recognized pillars of society, fell short. And fifth, in verses 21 through 48, Jesus delivers clear direction for being a light in a dark world. 
two weeks ago, Chris concluded his message with divorce. Jewish leaders had made divorce a common practice that could be justified for just about anything, including fading beauty and a burnt meal. But Jesus insisted that the true meaning of Deuteronomy 24.1 is that sexual immorality is the only legitimate reason for divorce. Once upon a time, divorce in our nation was strictly regulated and frowned upon. Unfortunately, in 1969, then-California Governor Reagan signed, into, signed a bill called the No-Fault Divorce Bill. California citizens no longer needed a reason to get divorced. In 1973, the type of divorce that Jesus condemned, no-fault divorce, was being practiced in 45 states. And in 1985, every state in the nation had started practicing no-fault divorce. Reagan's intent was to reduce the false accusations that characterized divorce proceedings. Years later, President Reagan told his son Michael that this action released, unleashed a divorce revolution, which Reagan said was his greatest regret. At the college I teach at, I witnessed firsthand the consequences of the divorce revolution. I teach communication courses. I spend most of my time listening to students. Before COVID, I had a 26-year-old woman visit me during my office hours. I immediately recognized her as a good student. However, she had been absent for a few weeks. So I smiled and said, nice to see you, stranger. She immediately started crying and said, Professor, I'm so sorry I've been absent. My parents are getting a divorce. And even though I'm 26, it makes me feel like I'm three years old again. I just don't know how to handle it. Sadly, her narrative is not rare. It's the norm. And whether a family is torn apart in youth or adulthood by unintended, unavoidable consequences for failing to uphold God's foundational plan for human flourishing, marriage, as outlined in Genesis 2, it's devastating. I've been teaching for 27 years. The first speech I have my college students do is called a cultural narrative. I define the assignment for, for the assignment, I define culture as anything that has contributed to making the individual who they are at that moment. I encourage students to go way beyond the obvious, race and ethnicity, and to give their peers an intimate look into what makes them tick. I give them three to five minutes and a free open platform. Having taught on various campuses in Southern California, I'm fortunate to always be surrounded by the most diverse groups of people to be found anywhere in the world. Tragically, however, I've realized that regardless of how radically different my students are in the traditional sense, there's a standout commonality that unites most, not some, most, a broken family. In 1998, while teaching at Antelope Valley College, a young woman gave me this book she had made for her presentation. Inside this book she made about her parents' divorce, she detailed the horrific challenges brought on by her parents' divorce. The broken family narrative is a dominant narrative in the classes I have taught and always teach. It's not uncommon for grown men 
and women to revert to their childhood and break down into tears as they describe how their broken family has helped to create a broken adult. It was the summer of 2007, however, that I realized how infectious and global the broken family narrative truly is. I heard a news story on the radio about a young boy in China. The boy had cut his mother's head off and delivered it to the police station because she, a single mom, had taken away his Game Boy. The radio commentator went on to say that China blames a lot of its social problems on the West, specifically the breakdown of the family. Inspired, for lack of a better word, by the boy in China, I started putting a check mark on my office door every time a student directly linked his or her life problems, challenges, and failures to abusive or just non-existent parents. From 2007, if you can see there, started, to 2020, squeezed in there, every time I witnessed another speech linking tragedy to a broken family, I put a mark on my office door. Specifically, every time I heard the word divorce, you can see divorce written all over the board. Every time I heard a divorce, I put another check. Ironically, when I started my admittedly crude recording method, my office was in a condemned building, so I figured nobody would, nobody would care. Years later, when I was moved to a non-condemned office space, I was given permission to keep my door. There it is. From the door, the voices of broken homes pull no punches. Whether it's alcohol or drugs, sex, sexuality, gender questions, violence, incarceration, gang life, depression, undesired pregnancies, abortion, suicide attempts, professional and ac academic inadequacies, and even committing murder, my students link their challenges, tragedies, and mistakes directly to their parents or lack of. And failed dads and divorce are the two most popular themes. Dads, that should convict us. The Lord has made us the leaders of our homes. Interesting to note, none of the usual suspects are ever spoken about with any consistency. Racism, homophobia, social and economic injustices, failed government, or the police. When individuals are given a platform to speak freely and encouraged to deeply reflect about their life, the most popular theme is a broken family. And the universal desire is always for a mom with a dad. No other combination has ever been mentioned as missing or desired. And dad or lack of, again, is most often the dominant villain in the stories. The door in my office stands as a convicting reminder of the words spoken on my wedding day between my wife and I as ordained by God. Traditionally, that is what is used to solidify marriage, wedding vows. When divorce happens, it nullifies the vows, making them not true. Years ago, I had a student sadly illustrate this boldly. I had a young woman get up in one of my classes for her cultural narrative, and she says to the class, the other day I met this really hot guy at the gym, and he asked me to move, into him, move in with him. 
The only problem was I was married at the time, but I really wanted to move in with this guy. So I got another divorce. The woman then wanted to explain that the most recent divorce was divorce number three. She even gave me a framed photograph of her recent divorce certificate, a certificate celebrating broken vows. She proudly declared to the class that she was a member of the divorce culture. That's how she defined her culture. Sadly, most people today are in some way connected to the divorce culture, myself included. Thank God, though, for amazing grace, the saving, life-transforming power of Christ and his words. My mother grew up in a broken home. Thank God, however, for his intercession. My grandmother's third or maybe fourth husband shared the gospel with my mother as a little girl. My mom would become an excellent God-fearing wife for my dad and a prayer warrior for my brother and I. Also, my wife, Fleur, she was born into a broken situation. But while her mother was pregnant, she received Christ. Soon after, Fleur's mother would marry a wonderful Christian man who embraced Fleur as his own. And today, the woman they raised is my wife, Fleur. The greatest gift God has given me in this life is the end of a result of a bunch of broken homes. But his grace is sufficient to make anything shine. So where am I going with all this? That is, if you've gone through a divorce or you're a young person affected by divorce, if you were right with God, his grace is sufficient to transform your situation into something wonderful. If you know and have faith in the truth of his words. With this considered, I find it very convicting that immediately following Matthew 5, 31 through 32, where divorce is addressed, Jesus felt it necessary to address God-honoring speech. Can you think of a more important place to commit to honoring your words than with a union connecting you and your spouse as ordained by God? A union intended, privileged to contribute to his foundational plan for life and living in the world that he created. Please look at Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall make no false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool of his feet. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Again, that's Jesus. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is evil. These words were written to confront Jewish leadership that was misusing language to suit their own selfish purposes, just like the abuse of divorce. But this passage can be summed up in just three words. Everybody look up. Tell the truth. Speak the truth. Commit to the truth. Uphold the truth. And keep your word. Honor your commitments. We've all heard the phrases used to emphasize 
people's points. I swear to cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And today a favorite with the youth, literally, literally. Think about it. If you need to punctuate a statement with words emphasizing how true you're being, what does that say about all your other words? And when you include the name of God in your swearing, you are speaking as though you have the authority to summons the creator of the universe at your beck and call according to your will. You don't. Our yeses simply must always be yeses. And our noes, noes. We must commit to speaking the truth. And this requires accepting that all things connected to Christ and his words are capital T truth. What does John 14.6 tell us? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the truth. This morning when Danny was getting ready to pray, he said, I want to remind everybody involved with the worship this morning. It's all about God. Yes, it's all about God. And it only makes common sense. Satan is the opposite of all of this. John 8, tells us that whenever the devil speaks, he lies. Because that is his nature. He is the father of lies. Think about that statement. How do you know the, the devil's lying? His lips are moving. I mean, how complete is that statement? The darkness of the world started with a lie. Genesis 3, 4. Thankfully, Proverbs 12, 9 tells us, truthful lips will be established forever. But then it gives us a warning, but a lying tongue only for a moment. And Proverbs 12, 22 tells us, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who deal faithfully are his delight. Think about those words. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. And I can't help but think about white lies. You know, those are like the acceptable ones. No, not according to God. He wants every word that comes out of our mouth to be truthful. And as if to bookend the lies that started in Genesis, listen to what the book, the last book of the Bible says. The last chapter of the last book. In Revelation twenty-two fifteen. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters. And then listen to this. This is how it ends this. And everyone who loves and practices lying. God takes the truth of our speech very seriously, especially for those who claim to represent him. Today, we are bombarded with lies about everything in life. I even have non-believing friends that are just dumbfounded by the headlines today. Just this week, on Tuesday night, during the confirmation hearings, Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Katanji Brown-Jackson, was asked if she could define the word woman. Jackson said she couldn't. A woman who says she can't define what a woman is will soon be one of our nation's Supreme Court justices. On March 13th, Rachel Levine, the nation's... i got to read this carefully. The, the title is three lines long. 
The nation's highest ranking transgender official, the U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, appointed by President Biden, was named by USA Today as one of their women of the year. Levine was asked by US Today, USA Today, what is your definition of courage? Levine responded by saying, I think my definition of courage would be to be true to yourself. Be true to who you are. We are not called to be true to ourselves. Think about it. This could actually mean claiming anything under the sun. We are called to be true according to the God creator who made us and with all things. And with that, here's a principle. Only by purposing to know what Jesus said can we purpose to honor him with our speech. How are you purposing to know the words of Christ? Is it just a Sunday thing? Or are you clinging to this like this is what you need for this life and the next? How does your life reflect a commitment to the truths his words speak to you? And how are you upholding his truths and not your own? Does your life reflect God's truth or the lies of the world? Now that we've considered God-honoring speech, let's move on to God-honoring action. Please take a look at Matthew 5, 38 through 42, and we're going to read that a second time. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go a mile, go two. Give to him who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is meant for courtroom justice, not personal vengeance. This is not a call to be a doormat or a suggestion to not properly seek justice or defend ourselves. If someone breaks into my house and attacks my wife or kids, I won't be presenting the gospel at that point. However, in the world, we are called to live the gospel when we are persecuted for the gospel. What do I mean by living the gospel? Well, for that, we look to what Jesus did. And it's not a secret or a mystery to be found in another book. It's clear in his book. This book tells us exactly how Jesus not only lived, but what Jesus did when he was attacked because of his words. God's word in Isaiah 53, 700 years before Christ was even born, tells us the Messiah would be humble, despised, forsaken, acquainted with grief, betrayed, not esteemed, stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, and pierced for our sins, crushed, scourged, oppressed, afflicted, and slaughtered like a lamb. And he would respond with silence, even though he was innocent. Innocent. 
He would knowingly give himself up as a guilt offering to save his people and honor his father. Jump ahead 733 years to Christ fulfilling this prophecy, and I will add fulfilling the law so that we don't have to be punished. Listen to what Philippians 2, 3 through 8 says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. I think that could just, you know, pause there for a second. Just that phrase should set us up for life. Have the same mindset of Christ. Who, being in the nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of men, being humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, because of his words, was nailed to a cross. He did not protest, but willingly sacrificed himself to save us and glorify his father. And right now I'm going to improvise because it's not written down, but I've been thinking about it all morning. Going back to our text for today where Jesus is teaching. And then it hit me. He's also speaking to himself. He's getting ready to get on that cross. Not only is he's not going to give up his, his shirt or coat or whatever, he's going to be stripped naked. Not only is he going to have to walk a mile, he's going to have to carry a cross. Not only is he going to be slapped across the face, he's going to be spit on, whipped, and nailed to a cross. Jesus was not just giving us direction. He was speaking about what he was going to do so that his disciples would see, wow, the, that direction he gave us? He was setting himself up also to be an example for us. The Bible's amazing. The biblical definition of Christian is adherent to Christ. Adherent means follower. A true follower of Christ, a true Christian follows Christ, and Christ is both spoken with his words and acted with his deeds, letting us know exactly how he would purpose to do what he would purpose to do in any given situation. And not only does he model speech and deeds for us with his words, but John 15, 8 tells us, 15, 18 tells us that we could expect to be hated because of his words. Because his words and deeds, John 7, 7, testify to the evil of the world and are contrary to the world. Therefore, it only makes sense that his followers be hated and treated poorly. And if you are a, a student of the Bible, which you should all be, um, we've been, here in America, we've been kind of living a fairy tale. The rest of the world, if you claim Christ has got it tough, and if you pay attention to our headlines, it's shrinking here. And if you read the book of Revelation, um, persecution is something very, very real. But Jesus has given us a model of how we're supposed to respond. Our response to persecution for honoring God is to do just as Jesus did. And 1 Peter 2.17 gives us direction for avoiding conflict, a really, really clear direction for negotiating this world, saying 
We are to honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Think about that. Honor all people. It doesn't say some people. It says all people. Love the brotherhood. That's where we focus our special relationships. Fear God, but also do what the king says, those who have been put in charge. This gives us another principle. Only by purposing to know what Jesus said can we purpose to honor him with our actions. How do your daily actions reflect the words of Christ? Where can you improve? Will you pray for deeper commitment and a desire to know what his words actually say? And ask that he would help you to better know and act on his words, would you pray? We are so blessed to be able to commune with God through his words that are living and active. If we seek to know and practice what it says. No wonder the Bible is also a bestseller. In fact, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the best-selling book of all time is the Bible. And research conducted in 2021 suggests that the total number of Bibles sold thus far is between five and seven billion. And according to CNN and New York Times, I'm surprised they touched this, the Bible is the most stolen book in the world. Doesn't this make sense though? Because this, this is what Jesus says. I was unsure how to conclude things this morning. You know, there's a lot of weighty material here and a lot of it not very happy. But yesterday, I decided to hike to the top of a mountain to pray. And let me first say, this isn't Dwayne's idea. You know, I just figure, well, if Jesus goes to the top of mountains to pray, it must be a, a good thing to do. I, I encourage you to do it because when you escape to the top of a mountain by yourself, it's just you and God speaks to you. And I don't mean in some like, mystical way, as Fred condemned this morning in Faith Builders, I mean like Romans says, you know, creation screams to his glory. So it's a fantastic place to go and pray and be rid of all the craziness of life. You know, we're living in a crazy world and I can't encourage you enough to escape from this crazy world and pray. Right, let's bow our heads. Lord God, thank you for your living and active word. Thank you, Jesus, for the privilege of having you, God, model for us how we, your creation, are supposed to speak and how we are supposed to act. I pray, Lord, that you lift up this body and Church of the Canyons would continue and always be a place that celebrates your words, your actions, and all the grace that you bring.